This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. To talk today about large project-based courses, for me this is a rather unusual thing. I'm a hardcore experimental uh, psychologist, and so I'm used to speaking from carefully gathered data, generally small samples, and really scrupulously adhering to exactly what the data show. And I'm not going to be able to do that today. I don't have um, well-developed uh, samples or scrupulous statistics and such. So this is a bit of a departure for me, but, but I'm going to hope that that's a plus rather than a minus and talk more broadly about ways of thinking about project-based um, learning. I have a few confessions uh, to make. The first is, my, my, despite the very kind introduction, I would say that my last teaching award was uh, 13 years ago. So hopefully I've improved since, but certainly there's, there's a little proof of that in the last 13 years. Um, the second confession is, I hated project-based courses when I won both of my teaching awards. So the first was for uh, undergraduate lecturing, and the second was for uh, uh, my work with PhD students one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And if you'd asked me at either of those times, what do you think of project-based learning, I would have said that's probably a very dumb idea. It's flawed in all these really profound ways, and just is, should never be done. So, so hoping that I don't have to give back my teaching award because I thought that at the time. Let, let, me, let me tell you why I thought that was true. First of all, students don't know very much. Now, that's not a criticism of them. They're, they're here to learn stuff. But projects, it seemed to me, took the requirement to know a lot. When I would work in industry, which I did for a long time, you wouldn't assign people to, to do something who didn't know anything about it. Yet in project-based courses, we say at the start of the 10 weeks, you're going to do a project. And we say, we've got, you know, you better start working on it right now, to which I've never heard a student reply, how are they going to work on it if I don't know anything? And if I know it already, what do I need you for? So there's something really profoundly weird about this notion of project-based courses, unless you're like four-year course. I get that. Like graduate school, I sort of understand. I think it's a great model, works real well. But in a 10-week quarter to say, you know, let's do stuff, students have every right to protest about their ignorance. My second fear was that if you did let them loose, God knows what they'd come up with. Because without clear guidance, you know, with graduates, since you work with them one-on-one, -on -one, you meet with them all the time, and every time a bad habit appears, you catch it and stop it, okay? But the fear is with a lot of students running around aimlessly, Lord knows what conclusions they draw, and being young, which is a great thing to be, they would likely draw many erroneous conclusions, and I would have little ability to stop them. Um, so I really hated them, and I didn't change my mind, actually, because of studying the pedagogy of project-based courses. Um, pedagogy is not my specialty. I, I'm, I'm not a pedagogist. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to try to get into project-based learning and I have to do all this reading first and stuff, it isn't going to work. And for many faculty who are not committed to the wonderful theory of pedagogy, if they're required to do a lot of stuff or learn a lot of stuff before you set them loose, it's just not going to work. So I decided I wouldn't become an expert on the pedagogy. I did have the, the absolute delight and privilege of talking with Larry Leifer about doing uh, project-based courses and learned a great deal from him. And then later, the person who works with him, Adi Mabogunji. But it's really more lore, you know, tradition, folklore, et cetera. Um, this whole point about scaling is important. Now, my approach to project-based courses probably, very probably, would only work at very few institutions. And I don't just mean the very best institutions, the best and the brightest, so that certainly helps. Um, for those of you who haven't had the privilege of teaching at other excellent universities, 
Stanford students are different in a couple of important ways that I'll mention that makes project-based learning, this type of large-scale project-based learning, viable for large-scale Stanford courses. I do have my doubts about how many other schools it would work at. Okay, so let me go back to 1993 or 4 when I won my last teaching award and uh, moving up in some sense to the present, telling you why students, faculty, and universities all should hate project-based courses, okay? First of all, when you talk with students, when I started thinking about project-based courses, they said, oh God, you know the type of students those attract. So I said, what types are those? So they said, well, first of all, it's the ones who don't want to be graded on their own. They want to have other kids to, to cover for them. So project-based learning encourages responsibility avoiders, social loafers, all the people who don't ever want to be stared at and answer for themselves. They also involve students with short attention span. These are the kids, they say, who can't sit down in front of a computer and write a damn paper. They got to run around and do stuff all the time. So we don't want to work with them. I'm a responsible student. And these guys, you know, they get distracted all the time. They probably watch a lot of TV, too. And they're the losers. They can't cope in real courses, you know, paper and exam courses. So they escape to project-based courses because, after all, who the hell knows what a project is? So it's hard to grade. And they also figure, well, you know, if it's a project, sort of like a paper. You can't give a student an F on a paper, and certainly not on a project. If there's something there, what do you do? So these seem like perfect for these sort of special students that no one really likes. Grading is intrinsically unfair. These kids say to me, and I live in a freshman dorm now, and I hear this a lot, you know, look, I'm a smart kid. I got here because I'm smart. I know how to get good grades. I'll be working with some idiot. They're going to screw me up. Then I can't make, I can't ignore, you know, what's going to happen? Either I'll have to do the whole thing and I'll do it, you know, and that'll mean I don't get quite as good a grade or I'll have to include their input and it'll screw me up. And then, you know, when I go to come tell the teacher that I did all the work, they're going to lie and say, no, they did a lot and they're underappreciated or I was too bossy or whatever. So this really sucks. So then the third one is these project-based courses are fundamentally lies. Okay, look, is what they say to me. When you give out a test, we know you don't care what the right, you know the right answer, so you don't really care what I say. I don't really care what I say. There's a deal here. I'll answer this thing, you'll grade it, and we're both done. Now, if I love the subject matter, that's fine, but the test itself is a boring and utterly uninteresting artifact. Let's move on. And if I don't love the subject matter, all the more. Let's make sure we just get this done and move on. So no one really cares. Then they say, oh yeah, then the project teachers. They're the ones who tell you, oh, these are projects, these are artifacts. We will look at them and bask in them, et cetera. And then the truth is what's going to happen. The professor looks at it. Maybe they give it a little more thought than the typical exam. They might give it a more thoughtful grade. You might get two paragraphs of comments instead of one, and then you're done. So there's a fundamental lie here. Project-based courses, you do these projects, no one really cares. So if no one cares, why should I care? And at least with a test, we both know when I'm done. Okay. So. So why else don't they care? So what if you're a really passionate professor, you so clearly love students, love teaching, believe in project-based learning as a way to do things. So you go to the class, okay, we're gonna bring it to threes and do the Ash experiment. There's one problem with that, Ash did it. And we know the right answer. So now you're playing with fire. The best case scenario is you won't get your name on it. And the worst case scenario is you're wrong, not you discovered something new. So once when I was doing this, I had a student, I, I was working as a TA in a class, and a student ran up and goes, this is great, I discovered the Ash experiment is wrong. So what happened? 
they got a C. Now, so the, so the came to me and said, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? I really made this major discovery, this dude, I don't know this dude Ashes, if he's still alive, but if he is, I should call him. And if not, we should do something about this. We should like alert the media. No, the student is told, you made a mistake. How do you know I made the mistake and Ash didn't? Well, Ash did 47 experiments and da da da, a long career, very famous guy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the student says, well, how the hell? So you set me up to fail. <laughs> Unless you're going to allow me to do 47 and then hold my evidence against his in a fight to the death, I'll take that. But what the heck is this about this, you know? Uh, you know, replicate the issue. So that really sucks. And then the second one is, what if they come up with something great? They accidentally cure cancer, they'll get an A plus, and then no one will know, right? So it's like, you know, this guy says, you cured cancer, wow, that's great, A plus. Put in the box along with the B's and the C's and we'll outside your desk and everyone goes away, okay? So it's, so it's an incredibly frustrating experience for students, so they don't like it. Why don't professors like project-based courses? It's an incredible amount of work. You sit there and go, I gotta worry about each one, gotta treat them individually, I have a stable of TAs to monitor and manage. <coughs> it's incredibly costly because the ratio of students to faculty is high, and do I get praise from my uh, you know, deans? No, they say, you know, you're using up too many faculty, can you support another way, blah, blah, so it really is annoying there. Also, because of the close contact between professors and students, they get to complain. Now. You may say, is that always true in classes? And the answer is no, because in a lecture course, there's not much to complain about. But if you've ever worked with someone else, you've thought, boy, if I could complain about this person, that would be great. And they say, oh, this is a project-based course. Here's where the professor really is interested in my interaction with other people. Let me tell him how horrible it is working with others. So you're all these complaints. You know, and it's so in the other one, you know, they may complain about a grade or whatever, but it's nice and clean. This is like, you know, I don't get it, the fellow students don't work, which I do, you know, duh, duh, et cetera, and so it's really annoying. And at the end of the day, instead of getting recognition for how hard it is to teach project-based courses, uh, you're told that your ratio of students to faculty, undergraduates taught to faculty is low, and so you should examine that for the future. So it's a lousy system for professors. Why does the university hate it? It's expensive as heck. You require lots of TAs, so there's few students for a faculty member, that's no good. And second of all, if the student really does invent something cool, now who owns it? Those are the undergraduate owners. What if there was a faculty, what if there was an industry representative involved, da, 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 da. And everybody just wants to take a nap. So these are really lousy things. These projects, I was right. Everything I thought in 1994 was absolutely right. And in fact, probably 13 years later, I'm even more convinced that all of this is true. Okay, so then why did I say it's not impossible, or did I mean it's not impossible, but surprise, it may not be impossible, but it's so hideous, don't do it. That could have been the sub-subtitle, right? And you'd, I doubt you'd come, maybe because I wanted you to come to the talk to hear that, but in fact, no. So why bother to do this? Sounds miserable, and there's really a couple of motivations. And one of my largest motivations came from a student who came up to me and was talking with me and I was, they were talking about doing some project, and I said, oh, God, you know, yeah, sounds reminds me when I did problem sets. I was a math and, and physics undergrad. I said a bunch of us would sit around and work on together. It was sort of fun and nice and all that, et cetera. And this person said, I've never worked with anybody, and I don't think I'd like it. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, my humanities classes, there's no such thing as problem sets or working in groups. You know, 
Uh, most of the courses I take in the humanities don't have that. Social sciences don't really have that. So unless you're a math, physics, or science major, an engineer, engineers, of course, you know, it's part of engineering, they never do it. So then you sit there and say, geez, Louise, you've never done that. So I thought, you've never worked in a team yet for a huge fraction of your life, that's all you're going to do. So that seems like a good thing to do in college. Second thing that made me really sad was they never invented anything. I'll talk a minute why that's such a sad thing to be true. Never inventing something is really sad. And never discovering anything. Again, you see, when we tell people to do the ash experiment, you can't discover anything. Because you either agree with ash, in which case he gets credit, or you disagree and you lose. And you can't discover anything. So, but if you ask humans, why do you get into projects and teams and work together? It's because we assume that something new will come out of it. Or in the case of problem sets, we just want to get the right answer. And then I asked them, then I, I was complained to one of the students that when I was a newer professor, I would write copious comments on papers, copious comments. And some significant fraction of students never picked them up. And I would say to them, why don't you pick them up? And they said, well, I don't care that much. And do you really care all that much? So I said, well, I cared enough to write comments. They said, yeah, but what if I told you, you know, I wasn't really going to read this thing, wasn't going to read your comments anyway, you don't have to write any for me. They said, other than giving me a bad grade, would there be any penalty? I said, no, actually, I might even thank you because I'm wasting time for a student who isn't going to read it. So I thought, boy, what an anomic experience. No one really cares. That seems like a miserable way to do things. And in fact, in research we've been doing, we've shown computer characters with no This is to show you how important caring is, research uh, we've done uh, with uh, Rosalind Lee and others in the lab. We have a computer character, when you get an answer right in this testing version, goes, great work. And people are so happy. They learn more. They work longer at it, et cetera. And this is a little, what was it, like a bear? <laughs> like a little picture of a cartoon bear that didn't move, didn't talk. It just had a little word balloon that said, good job, or not. And that works. So I thought, geez, if a little cartoon bear that doesn't even move and only has a word balloon cares, Lord knows what might happen to education if someone cared. It's a novel thought. And they thought, you know, you ask professors to care, but in some sense students are always thinking, that's your job to care, you know, and really your caring is more about the teaching product per se. Also, Stanford students are amazingly cool in a lot of ways. They have a lot to contribute to society, and it would be nice if we could encourage them to do that. So we certainly, I think Stanford's doing a fabulous job in encouraging volunteer work in these, uh, you know, alternate spring break, doing fabulous things. But I thought, wouldn't it be great if students can contribute through their class life as opposed to other things so they could contribute intellectually and practically? So that's why it's a good thing to do, even though basically all these rotten things are true. So, the, so let me just try to summarize beyond that. What would have to be true to make this work? What would have to be true to make project-based learning a good thing? First of all, we'd have to motivate students. Remember the famous AASH experiment is a great way to demotivate people. What are the two, what are two motivations that really seem to work amazingly well for Stanford students? One is this. If you can tell them you will invent something that will affect millions and possibly billions of people that really can, they get excited. They think that's pretty cool. And you can't say, so when you grow up and leave Stanford, go and do that, and you know, this course will teach you that. Doesn't work. They're 18, they're 19. But if you can tell them right now, you can invent something that would affect millions and possibly billions of people, they'll do it. Especially those who can't do a startup, right? 
People do startups, like, ooh, I'm gonna invent something that's gonna affect millions and millions of people. Tons of kids here can't do startups for various reasons, but they can still do it. The second one is my favorite. It's, it's really the thing I look at whenever I feel frustrated or down about research. I look at this and say, this is the best reason to do research. That there is a moment in history when you are the only person on earth who knows something. Think about that. Think, think about, right, Faust had to sell his soul for not even that much. But you get a moment in history. Just think about that. So you tell, imagine you're 19, and you tell, someone tells you, there's going to be a moment in history. I always use the word history, not like, you know, there's going to be some time. Moment in history, history, when it is absolutely the case that you will know something because you discovered it, no one on earth will know. Right? So note how that's exactly the opposite of the Ash experiment. Exactly the opposite. So you say, you're going to know this thing no one on earth knows, and then you get to tell everyone else. What could be a cooler thing if you're 19 or 49, like me? What, what could be cooler at any age than to know something no one else knows? So if you can give that motivation and say, and, and here's the best part, you can't say with a straight face, this really is true. Kids who do research really do know something that they're the only person on earth who knows it. The other thing you have to do is dilute them a little bit. And this delusion is key because Stanford students are remarkably delusion, can be deluded much more easily than many other students. You tell them, you know what? It's totally doable. You can do these two things. And the Stanford students think, you know, with my intelligence and social skills, I can. And, and there's a critical, no, I think there's a really critical point there. It has to do with the social side. I've been to many other wonderful universities, and the students are terribly, terribly smart. I mean, just remarkably creative, remarkably smart, delightful to work with. But Stanford students are, tend to be on the high end of social confidence. They tend to be much more poised, suave, willing to talk with people. To give, uh, I'll just mention this. You know, I did this um, uh, big idea festival where we had 200 people from industry showing up. And this was a class of 100 kids, so these weren't well handpicked selected kids. I'll talk about that in a minute. To a person, they were charming. When I was 19, if I had met a person from industry, I would have collapsed. I would have hidden. These kids were like, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Let me, I have, I just got business. No, they won't say I just got business card, but you can see they're like crisp and clean and go, you know, here's my business card. May I have your business card? May I contact you? I'm going, you don't know how to do this because they've never done it before, would it? But they're like, social scenes I'm good at. So they're remarkably good. So when you tell them, you can cope in the social world, you can cope in the physical world, you can change you know, the fate of humanity, they're like, yeah, that seems like something I could do. <laughs> and you tell them the one message your parents have been telling them since they were born, you are incredibly important. So you tell them, you are hugely important to inventing things that will affect millions and billions of people and to discover things no one else can discover. You are important. So if you tell them that, not only do they like it, but they've heard it enough from their parents that they believe it. Okay, so what I want to talk about is two implementations of this. Uh, they both involve large-scale mixed undergrad and grad project-based courses. They're very different. One was a 92 to 110 student lecture class. I've been doing this for about four or five years now. And the second is a 30 to 40 student experimental research class. Last year it was 45. So let me talk about each of these in turn. 
The, the large-scale lecture course is Communication 169, and it's cross-listed in a lot of departments. That's a great thing to do. If you want to do courses, project-based course, here's another thing that's scary about project-based courses. Project-based courses, students always assume somebody has inside information. Like when you go to mechanical engineering project-based course, they say, open to everyone. You know there's going to be a screwdriver that only a mechanical engineer can use in your shafted. So it's really critical that you list in a lot of departments so that students figure their expertise is relevant, right? Combined with your important, your, your wonderful, your whatever. So the course we did it in is called Computers and Interface Psychology and Design. It covers the psychology of technology for the most developed countries. My research is, um, with the exception of the Kosmetsky Global Collaboratory, the vast majority of my work involves US, Western Europe, and Japan and Asia. The, the better developed parts of Asia. So I do advanced interfaces. I consult for all the leading technology companies. And I really have very little involvement in and no research knowledge, virtually no research knowledge in the developing world, although I'm starting to get very involved in it. So what is this class? This class is not called a project-based class. I would lose half my enrollment if I called it a project-based class for all those reasons you saw earlier. This is called a lecture class in which we do a project. It is an enormous difference. So the class, when they walk into class, it's primarily readings and lectures. And there are a few products I bring in and we critique based on the theories in the class. There are two 75-minute lectures per week and one 50-minute section per week. It looks like a normal Stanford class. It just happens to have this thing called a project in addition to a midterm and final. So let me tell you how the projects are structured and why they're structured this way. Teams of three students, this is the Larry Leifer research that suggests that teams of three seem to work best, and it does seem to work quite well in the class. We tell the students to be randomly assigned, to be willing to be randomly assigned. Uh, only about half are willing to do that. And I've been meaning to do research on which groups do better, sort of all a lot of the work, but we haven't done that yet. Next point is critical. The projects are 25 to 40% of the grade. The course is not, the project is not the majority of the grade. The minute the project is the majority of grade, all the whining, all the worries about being shafted by others rise to the fore. So it's critical that you keep it less than 50. Stanford, as smart as they are, 49% works out, you know like 9.99 is not $10? At Stanford, 49% is not 50. It's so as smart as these kids are. So then you say, you know, at most, it's not even close to half your grade. Oh, they say. Okay. So that's important, too. I also tell people, and there's another important point, some of you are more project-typey people, and some of you more exam-type people. So you exam-type people will only count the project 25% and the exams and stuff the rest. For you project-y type people will count the project 40%. So again, you're telling people we're going to play to your strengths. OK. Perhaps the best idea we've had about project-based courses is to tell them, we want you to have big ideas. You're too dumb to have little ideas. Now, what does that mean? Well, imagine this. Imagine I came into you and said, I want you to make an improvement on your toaster oven. That would be, for most of you, I assume, extremely hard. Why? Because people who know a lot about toaster ovens have already thought of a lot of stuff. So an improvement that's really realistic 
probably none of you, including myself, of course, are going to come up with. Because anything you do try to do probably runs up against manufacturing problems, design problems, cost problems, etc. You'll never do it. Okay. That's demoralizing. Remember the point. You can change the lives of millions and billions of people. If you can't make your toaster better, who cares? That's the other problem, right? No one will care. You can't change anything. Now, you can go to school for an extended period of time, get an advanced degree, apprentice under toaster makers, and eventually you probably could improve a toaster. But that ain't going to happen in 10 weeks. So let's move out of that domain. Let's go the exact opposite way. Let's say we want you to have a wild idea, a bold idea, so bold that it's very likely your exact idea won't work. But it's much more likely that there's a grain or a kernel or something valuable in your idea that will work. And other people can then fill in all the missing details. That sounds doable. Because to me as a student, that sounds like they just want me to do something smart. I know how to be smart. They want me to do something creative. I know how to be creative. I don't know how to build toaster ovens. Jeez Louise. But maybe in building a toaster oven, if I'm explicit about what I'm doing, people will see something cool and steal the idea and run with it. So we tell them, we want them to design something. There's a design course. You have to design an actual product. But what we were focusing on is big, provocative, original. Note original. Because again, if you're trying to compete with others, you're doomed. You're doomed. You will never succeed. But if you're original and bold, then you will. And we tell them, we want people, when they look at your thing, to say, wow, what a great idea. Knowledgeable people. And we keep on explaining to them, you don't know enough for a little idea. And the students like that a lot because they're smart enough to know that. They know that any improvement they try to make to an existing product, any small improvement, is not going to work, is going to be dumb because someone else would have done it. But if you say to them, don't play in that ground, you can't win. You're doomed to fail. Play in a ground where you have a great chance of succeeding. And now your partial ignorance is a plus. You may say things, see things in a new way. Okay? So, that's one thing we do. Another thing we do is we don't want people to be forced to do anything that they can't do. So, many classes say, build a styrofoam prototype of their thing. Now, that sounds innocuous. But do you know, actually, as someone who has terrible depth perception, making a styrofoam anything is really hard? And maybe most of you are sort of functional enough to do that. But I'm not. And you know also that there's kids who like, you know, have a lathe at home or in their you know, room who can cut this thing. So you never want to give a group of people an advantage on a deliverable. That's a critical point. So what we say is you're only allowed to draw it. You can draw it by hand. You can cut out little shapes. You can get clip art off, off the internet. No building allowed. No physical artifacts. Then the engineers groan. Oh. So then you calm them down and you say, Ah, but aren't you really good at finding pictures on the web? And they say, oh, yeah, I know 47 secret search engines. You say, good. You can do it. You don't have to be an artist. You can do whatever you want. And the humanities types, we say, aren't you great searchers, you know, coveting, you know, ferreting out information that might otherwise be hidden? They say, oh, yes, that's good. So basically, you make it a level playing field for everyone. So you never want to allow anything about the technology to stop them. So no programming, no physical implementation. Nobody's allowed to show off. Okay. Um, we also decided, the first year I did this, 
I had students do designs. They had a created uh, uh, information practice service for a college student. Okay. There were some fascinating dynamics having to do with the nature of human groups. And one of the things you discover is there are certain types of people who will dominate a group by claiming expertise. And what I saw again and again was in these three-person groups, often someone, even though they were all college students, didn't have any unique experiences, people would assume a claim of knowledge and boss around the other people. It was frequently, and again the literature suggests this, a male in a group of a male and two females. The male would often claim expertise, not based in reality, but claim it, and it was tough to argue with. Or, or it just created a bad dynamic because people claimed they knew things. So I figured the best thing to do is make them talk about people they know nothing about. Now, there are still you know, art students who will make up things about anything, right? They claim to know about, my favorite is you're in a, in a section, and a student will raise their hand, someone will say such and such, and they'll say, why no, even in cavemen, even in prehistoric times, such and such happened. So I'll go, by definition, we don't know what the hell happened in prehistoric times, because it's prehistory. What the hell are you saying? Like, they'll say things like, well, you know, so someone will say deodorant was invented by, there's a famous one, deodorant was invented by Madison Avenue. Someone would say, no, why even in caveman times, people would spread sweet-smelling leaves on their bodies to whatever. You say, none of those leaves exist. There can't be any archaeological record. You're just making that up, okay? And that, but that never phases those types of people. They'll just keep making stuff up until somebody calls them, and then they'll keep going anyway. So the key here is to have them do things where they can't claim unique expertise. And again, if it's a little bitty idea, the you know, electrical engineer can say, oh, I know the voltages, right? So you're doomed. You're doomed. You go, okay, you win. I can't argue about voltages. But if it's a big idea, then you can say, I don't give a damn about voltages. Here's what we're doing here. It's cool. You know, is it reasonable? And then you can bring the engineer and say, is this really possible? But now the engineer on the one hand feels like, ooh, I get to declare reality. But on the other hand, they're not micromanaging the process. And um, so this undermining of no, uh, no, not knowing everything, no assumption of right answer. And we, this course focuses on information technology because it's also easier to, to design and describe. It is crucial in project-based courses to have deliverables. And the deliverables, again, have to be something that any student can be do without the uh, help of others. So in this class, a large lecture class, we have them write a storyboard. I'll show you the definition of the story. And I'm sure we'll have time for some examples. There were 11, 12 PowerPoint slides. Why that number? It fits on a 30 by 40 poster board. Why that size? That's the size the bookstore sells. It's a good reason. Um, oh, I don't know why it says recommended. And what it is is a pictorial sense of how the product or service will be used. Wait, where's my? Oh, there it is. OK. Then we also have a textual rationale. So this is simply writing words. Because students, oh, here's the other thing. Students hate it, hate, hate, hate it when, uh, you know, so it's why they don't take art classes. Because they feel some arbitrariness. It's, it really fascinates me, right? So, so you look at their storyboard and go, that's a B plus. And they go, what do you mean? How do you decide that? But then you read their paper, and you go, that's a B plus. They say, oh, well, sure. Everybody knows what a paper is, you know, a grade of a paper. So we discovered it's very important to have a textual rationale so that when students say, you just arbitrarily decided on the storyboard, you can say, no, I didn't arbitrarily grade your textual rationale. 
even though, of course, if they're both arbitrary, they're both us trying to do the best we can to assess knowledge. It's also good because it encourages people to read things, etc. And so we have an 8 to 10 page uh, double space rationale. Not that long, written in a narrative form. Okay. It's also important to tell the students what should the slides look like. And we give them tons of examples, but here's what they basically look at. Slide one is the name of your interface project and the names of the group members. Second one is characteristics of the user in the place. If you're designing something, it's very important to know who you're designing it for. So we give them some examples. Uh, DC stands for developing country. So list the relevant aspects of developing country. The name of the user, it's very important when you tell a story. These are storyboards, so it's important to know who the story's about. So they pick a name of a person and they list relevant. And then critically, they say what problem or opportunity are they trying to address? Now, this turned out to be, I would say in my entire 22-year career, the most moving moment of that career came the first year we did this for developing countries. Each group, and I'll tell you a little more about this, but I'll just say right now, each group one by one told a problem in a developing country. It was so intense. Students were in tears because one by one around the world you hear these problems. It was an unbelievably powerful, but here's the more powerful part of the experience. Each one of those problems was addressed. See, that doesn't happen in the news. In the news, they'll say, here's a bad thing that happened. But in this, remember, they're solving it. So it was like problem, solution, problem, solution. There was this sense, it was like this amazing bonding experience of tragedy and empowerment. These students felt like, geez, Louise, there's a lot of problems. But wait a minute, I'm on the empowerment side. I'm on the side of fixing the darn thing. So it was an unbelievable experience. And every year we've done that, that's been the most striking thing, this, this juxtaposition of problem, solution, problem, solution. It becomes extremely moving. It's what got me involved in studying developing countries. So I was doing developing countries first, I should make clear. I had absolutely zero academic interest in developing countries. None. Zero. I got interested in it as a way of getting students not to talk about themselves all the time. After hearing these projects again and again, I started saying, wait, this is sort of cool. You can be. I felt empowered. I went out and did stuff. So, so I'm now involved in the Kuznetsky Global Collaboratory, actually, helping things. Third is, list your brilliant, startling, and innovative ideas. It's very important in this type of environment to talk about the students being brilliant. They are not intimidated. When you tell students, write a brilliant paper, they're scared to death. When you say, come up with a brilliant idea, those sound cheap. Those sound easy. Oh, an idea? Hell, I get brilliant ideas all the time. You know, are startling and innovative, so that's important. And then what we do is we have um, slides that are a day in the life of this person who lives in, and each slide walks people through the use of the interface. And I'll show those, um, I just want to make sure we cover the content here. And then we have the dissemination phase. This is hugely, hugely, hugely important. If the ideas simply were graded and sat in a box outside my office, it would be deadly. So for a few years, we did the famous Big Idea Festival, or BIF. Kathy Lung was the organizer of the first Big Idea Festival. And all I did was, I just called up a bunch of people I knew, Silicon Valley, there's zillions of them. And for the technology projects, I'd call up the VCs I knew and stuff like that. And for the development thing, I just called people in the development community. And we had over 200 people just show up in a room, and I told them, all you're going to do is see 30 bold ideas of Stanford students. Do you know the line that formed? It was a bigger line than any talk I've ever given. I'm a good speaker and I'm pretty well known, but compared to people going, you mean in like an hour and a half, I can see 30 bold new ideas by kids who are incredibly smart from all disciplines? I'd pay a lot. We did it for free, right? Although we got a donation from what, Phillips that first year? 
and then Motorola. But they would have paid us. They would have killed for that. And here's the student. So the student goes, so what did we do? The way we structured it was we had easels around the room, and we had everybody had their 30 by 40 poster, equal, no, no artifacts, no whatever, no touchy-feelies. And one by one, each group walked up to the stage, gave a one-minute presentation of what they were doing, and then stood by their posters. And these people walked around and talked with them. A, the students couldn't believe that these people were talking with them. B, they were so good. They were just so good at that. So it was unbelievable. And they started taking business cards, collecting business, training. Kids got excited. Kids got started doing projects. Startups started. All this other stuff. Kids got jobs. Not, but, but critically, not a single one of those events had to do with the exact project the student did. You know why? Their projects were dumb at some basic level. But they're supposed to be their kids. You're not looking for the invention. But many of them had a germ of an idea. And a lot of the ideas, so some guy would come up and go, you know, this project, there's, what made you think of this? And they'd talk about it and they'd go, now that's a great insight. Could we use that for our, there was one I remember this was, so, so met, right, developing countries. Someone says, we're designing this new thing for Disneyland. This new tracking system for people wanting to do, would this help? And the kids were engaged and all, it was like, the company was thrilled, students were thrilled, jobs occurred, right? And it wasn't about Disneyland. Believe me, the word Disneyland did not appear in any of our developing country slides. But nonetheless, it was because, because intelligent people were able to find critical ideas for them and then work together. So it's phenomenal success and it's worked very well. Unfortunately, over the past couple of years, <clears throat> I haven't had the bandwidth to do it, which has been regrettable and I really have to revive that. But even when we couldn't do that, what did we do? We simply had an in-class presentation. We had each group walk up, the whole class was there, 100 kids, each group would walk up for one minute, and, and critical, not just present. After every five, I would give comments, highlighting the brilliant ideas. Not A plus, B minus, not that was good or bad, but like, here is the brilliant idea. That meant that every kid left that room thinking, I had a brilliant idea. I could have more of them. And many of them did come after and go, hey, I, want, I have more brilliant ideas, can you? And again, so they've gotten involved. We've got kids going to India now. We've got kids going all over. But again, remember, this course is not about developing countries. And most important, the vast majority of those kids would never take a project-based course and would never have signed up for the course if it was called project-based. They signed up because it was lectures on computers and interfaces, and they wanted to learn the stuff. And if you ask them, was this a project-based course, they say, what the hell are you talking about? It was lectures, it was a normal class. We just had a project in it. Okay, the, now how did this solve? I've been hitting it already, but let me just quickly go through. How did it solve all the problems I mentioned earlier? So you should of course remember all those problems or check your notes or whatever it is you do. Here, here's what happens. First of all, normal students. None of these kids who tried to hide, because it was a lecture class. So it had normal kids in it. Um, the grade on the project was not definitive, so your grade didn't get mucked up. People who care heard about it. These things weren't just swallowed away. We did posting, we also post them on the web, but not just post them on the web and throw them out. We, give the, we show the kids a list of all the people we're sending this to, specifically famous people from around the world who get to see this. When students ask for recs, the worst thing that can happen if you're a professor is you teach a 150-person course, and a student walks up to you and says, could you write me a letter of recommendation? I got an A in your course. And I used to say, I can write you got an A. I have no damn idea who the hell you are. So, but if a kid says, oh, remember me? I'm Project Moo. There really was a project move about milk output organizer and very important. But 
He goes, I, go, oh, I know Project Moo. I don't know who the hell you are, but I know a lot about Project Moo. It was a cool project. Then I can write him a letter because I know Project Moo. So the students have a point of discussion. So literally, any student from that class who contacts me sends one is, hi, I was a sophomore in your class. You may not remember me because they always write that, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I don't. They go, but I was, you know, the syphilis project. I go, oh, syphilis, right. You know, that was great because of this. And then they can remind me, in fact, sometimes I write that to say, and remember the thing you said was great about this project. They're writing their own rec letters. The thing that was great about this project was, and you go, oh, good, 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 man. You know, so that's great. Note, it fits neatly within section. So we only, our teacher TA to student ratio was 30 to 1. Sections are, you know, often they're about 30 to 41 anyway, because the way we do projects are based in sessions. So you have to be in the same section as the students you're doing your project with. So can okay, is that, it wasn't as hard as it looks. The festival was killer, but with an unbelievable payoff. And if we could figure out a way to do it, we'd do it again. And the class itself wasn't that bad. It wasn't expensive because it didn't need a lot of extra staff. It came out of the class, TAs. And there were no IP worries because these ideas are too ridiculous. Or brilliant, right? They're, 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 they're perfect because they're not IPable, there's no ownership issues, but at the same time, they're cool enough that companies would want to use them. So that's the magic of this. Let me quickly, very quickly go to the other class, same large research, but this was a class where we said, we're going to do research projects. And these are real experiments, so I mentioned the ASH experiment earlier. This class is inventing the Shridlump experiment where Shridlump is a kid in the class. That's what this is about. This is about developing projects that these kids will get their names on, not dead people. Okay, it's original research projects. This was a class on advanced experimental design. And, and at first I thought it would intimidate people, but I immediately said, first sentence of the description goes, you don't have to know anything to take this class. You just have to be hardworking and really smart. And whatever expertise you bring to the table will be incredibly valuable. I teach a wonderful lecture called Everything You Wanted to Know About Experimental Research But We're Afraid to Ask. It's a one and a half hour lecture that brings everyone up to speed. Now, here's another point about teaching project-based courses. If you take what you do seriously, which is what I did in 1994, I won the teaching award, you will never teach a project-based course. Because to do what you do requires so much knowledge, thought, consideration. You'd never let some bozo 19-year-old touch it. So when I told somebody I'm teaching a one and a half hour lecture, everything you need to know about, not like some the things you need, like everything you need to know, people said, that's insulting to me. I teach an entire three quarters on everything you need to know about experimental research. And in fact, I do not even touch the surface of experimental research. Okay? And I said, you know what? You're right. I love experimental research. I've been doing it 20 odd years. And I'm a lot better at it than I was 20 years ago. But you know what? If I got to wait 20 years, none of these students are going to finish the course. Because they only get one year for an incomplete. So I said, we got to do something about that. So let's not take everything we know seriously. Same thing with building, right? You tell, like you say, we're doing a design class. They say, oh, do you produce artifacts? Do you use your prototyping? Da -da -da. I say, no, no. And, and, and it gets them in the gut. It's like, ah, oh, my craft, my beloved craft. And I'm glad they love their craft. But at the same time, if you really want kids to just do stuff, you better give it up. So I, when I have PhD students, they don't just get one lecture on the beauties of experimental design. I work in a death. They work with me all the time. They learn an incredible amount. But it takes them a long time. We got 10 weeks from start to finish. 
Uh, the course is structured around individual meetings with project groups, but I don't do it. I have some meetings with them, of course, throughout the quarter, but it's not fundamentally me driving it. The teams are three or four, again, the Larry Leifer rule, undergraduate and grad students. Students indicate, in this case, they're, not ra they're randomly assigned in the sense that they indicate their interest area and we pair them up. But we also do drafting. So the, the team leads sort of know what they may need, like do they need programmers, do they need this or that, and they'll sort of draft the, the students. The team leads are PhD students or experienced master students, and this is critical. They are not TAs, they are not RAs, yet they kill to be in this class. They strangle each other to fight to get in this class. Why? Because what do they want to do? Well, if you're an experimental researcher, you want to run experiments. And, you, and I say to them, would you like to have four terribly bright, energetic students helping you with all aspects of the research or not? They say, how much do I have to pay you? They don't ask for TA support. They're like, you mean I can get free ones? And in fact, so there's this tremendous demand to make the class bigger and bigger. Because they go, I'll do two teams. Because I can get two experiments done. You know? So, so it works extremely well in that way. Um, and what do these kids do in one quarter? They have to come up with an original research uh, question, design it, implement it, run participants and gather the data, and analyze the data in 10 weeks. This is impossible. But the first time I took the course, I forgot to tell the students that. And they all did it. I found out if you tell them it's possible, they believe you. It's amazing what they'll believe. This is the part about delusion. So you say, look, you can do this in 10 weeks. And then, you know, there's always the people who scoff and they say, oh, but isn't this something that should take years of crafting and da da da? I say, no, it's done in 10 weeks, all the time, by everybody. Go and do it. And they do. And it works great. And they get fabulous data. And fantastic things happen. Well, what are their deliver? Oh, so in this case, the presentations, they get journal articles. Tons of students at this class, undergraduates, have published journal articles based on this research. Conferences, they go to conferences and present the research. Also, like at the recent MediaX conference, we had student teams, kids come in and show their stuff. Um, book chapters. So my book, my second book, Wired for Speech, about 80% of the, the studies discussed, and it's a book that describes studies, are from this class, one year or two years, where we just said, do projects. How come that worked? Because no one did the ASH experiment. Each experiment was different. Now, if you count, in that class of about 30 to 40 students, three to four per team, there were 10 experiments produced in one quarter, in one 10-week period. That is the most productive social science lab in the world the most productive social science lab in the world at virtually zero cost. In fact, most of the workers here are paying to be there, called tuition. And they all say to themselves, what happened? They have research experience. Tough to do research. You know, universities trying to get more students some research experience. In fact, they say, oh, God, if I have to work with an undergrad, another one, you know, I can do one, I can do two. I can't scale it. But here you scale it. Here they get all these opportunities. Note also the incentives. Remember, in a normal class, the incentive of the TA is to grade as little as possible. And the incentive of the student is to do as little as possible to get the grade they want, with the exception of those few students who are wonderful and fabulous and I love. Note in this class, the incentive of everyone is to do a project so good that it can get published. Think about that. It's not a grade incentive. There's a total incentive to do work so good that the outside world will say it's great. And sometimes
sometimes students do that for their own reasons. Like, you know, if you have a class, when I was in college, there was a class I just loved. And I said, I'm going to do the best damn paper I can conceivably. I'm just so into this. I'm so psyched I'm going to do it. So that happened once. And you know what? The professor read it and said, excellent work, Cliff. Fair enough. What the hell was he going to do with my paper? But here, the and note, the team leader has an incredible incentive because they're PhD students. They want to publish. They want to go out in the world. They want to have me able to say that they've worked with students on research. So it's a phenomenal way of aligning uh, things. We also had a research festival for this. And again, companies killed to be there and um, came because we said, hey, do you want to hear about 10 new discoveries in Stanford in an hour? All about interfaces? Yes. <laughs> yes, lots and lots. Lots and lots of people did that. And what happened to the students? They met people from industry. They got jobs. They got new research ideas. They got everything. And it was free, right? I mean, we did, well, we paid for food, didn't we? We sort of had, but that was cookies and stuff. It wasn't even a real meal. And, and it worked great. So, so now for research, how does this solve the problem? Normal students, low-cost way to get into research instead of requiring one-on-one -on -one research involvement, it's helpless. Grades are effort-grounded. No one didn't get a good grade because their experiment didn't work, because that's unfair. They're doing research, right? People who care hear about the projects, publication, obviously. Again, I remember students by the projects. Critical, the projects neatly fit into the leaders' lives. The team leads have the exact same incentive structure as the students. That's the magic of projects. <coughs> It is hard work, but that hard work pays off in research. Think about that. Go to most faculty, especially junior faculty, and say, would you like your teaching time to actually result in research and publications? Hmm, that's a toughie, they say, if they're under-socialized, right? They say, whoa! And then you say to students, you say, student, would you like your classroom time to go towards research and publications and experience in research? Hmm, another toughie. Right? So it's, it's so easy and stupid that we get many more applications than we can handle of students. We, we, and the only reason I don't do it is because at some point I give up. Not my, believe me, the, student, the PhD students would take more. Students would do more. I just want to have some. I, I do like being involved with the groups because I care about my research, so I, I keep it limited. But limited means 10 groups in one quarter. 10 groups. And no IP worries because here it's all um, basic uh, research. So what happens? Students love these classes because they pay off. They pay off intellectually. They pay off in stimulation. They gain skills. The first class, they learn how to work in teams. This was one of my favorite comments. I, I just have to tell you this. It was my, my, my first year teaching a class, and a student walked up to me and said, Professor Nas, something really strange is happening. We have a three-person team, and one of the person isn't pulling their share. Does that ever happen in three-person teams? Do one person screws off? I said, there's even a research literature on it. And we then talked about, and he was so, and he said, well, what do you do? I said, that sounds like a great opportunity for learning, doesn't it? I said, let's talk about it. And then we t I actually lectured on it. You know, what do you do when someone's a scruff? I thought, the fact that this kid was surprised, and I said, well, haven't you worked in teams before? You know, like, that's one of the motivations. No. I said, I always do stuff on my own, because I, I always think I'm smarter. You know, like, that's one of the other things. You think I'm smarter than the average kid. Why would I want to work with the average kid? Good, good question. 
So it's good to have interdisciplinary teams and stuff. But again, it's this, this naivete that can be removed. And because these kids are so smart, they figure it out. Because that kid later in the quarter said, wow, I tried this strategy and it really worked. And I said, let me tell you a secret. You'll need it again. <laughs> this is not just, I said, I'll grant you. When you learn to take the SATs, you may never take the SATs again. But if you learn to work in a team, I'll bet you a nickel, you're going to benefit from knowing that again. And he got the job. I mean, he understood it was kidding. But at some level, it was, it was really cool, right? He's going, oh, my gosh. I can learn stuff about, you know, there's something about being in a team that's more than this. So, so, so I think that this is really a thing. The other thing is, so students incredible opportunities. And for me, what a great way to identify the most super talented, right? Not just the interview. So in this research course, I say to my PhDs, all right, who's the one or two that we want to recruit? We get them. Done. My, my admissions are done for next year. Um, in the other class, I say, who are the kids who are really engaged in energetic and research? And then I say, hey, why don't you do, why don't you do this class again? And they can take the class many times. It's so funny. These students go, you know, it's, it's really great because they come to me and go, that seems like a class you could do more than once. And they say, because, you know, not every research study is the same. I said, son of a gun. You're right. Why don't you do that? So I have kids who have taken this class four times. And what have they done? Four totally different studies. Some trying to get breath, some trying to get uh, breath, some trying to get depth. Same idea. So they do all these courses, and it's fabulous for them. And for me, then again, I find the kids and I say, why don't you join my lab? So the very best undergrad, in fact, there's one here now, uh, very best undergrad, you say, hey, the hell with the course. Come and join our lab. Hang out. Do, you know. So it's a phenomenal recruitment thing as well. So let me stop there. And um, I hope I didn't run over time. I didn't know what time I was supposed to stop. So, so, um, and thank you all. Take, take questions on anything. Ha happy to talk about any of this. Um, how do you deal with the Human Subjects Committee for publishing research out of the course? It's a total pain. So what we do instead is we do a few things. One, we try to create studies that are under exempt review, which can go really fast. The other thing we do is we try to, when we write, we already do this in our lab anyway, when we write pr pr protocols, we try to write them broadly enough that, that things will fit. But we don't do high-risk research. That, that is a constraint that's frustrating. I mean, I accept it because, but in, a, in my perfect research world, in a, sen for a perfect project-based class, you wouldn't have human subjects for that. You'd give an exemption. It'd be hard to do another. you give an exemption because I don't want to slow down these kids. You can't do that, so you, we're very careful. But it is a, you're right. It's the number one problem for me. And it's annoying and horrible, but yeah. You never want to lie to students. I, I don't think it's ever good to lie to students. But, but, but here's the answer. If they did have a really good idea, we do circulate it to the right people who would take it up and do it. Now, if I say any, it, anyone can come up with a great idea, we all know that that's what I guess they call in, in the ad biz puffery, right? A lot of people can't come up with great ideas. But we don't know. But but if I had a bet, I bet some of these kids can. And in fact, it's sort of the genius of Silicon Valley, right? We say, let's have 50 people pick startups, and some of them are going to work. Most won't. But what should we do? We should say, you know, since most won't, 
Each individual should make the decision that their expectation is, is negative and no one should do anything. So it's true, in a sense, if I really told them the total truth, I would say, you know, the probability that you, 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 Fred, come up with, it's sort of like, you know, most of these collect aggregate behavior problems. You, Fred, probably you're going to come with a good idea is pretty damn small. But someone's going to do it, and maybe it'll be you. But if I say it that way, that's a little more depressing. So if you say anyone can do it, it's less depressing. But it's honest. I mean, every year we've had projects picked up by, by companies, by developing countries, by et cetera. So they've been picked up. Not full, full blown pieces, but who cares? In the case of journal articles, sometimes it's study one of two studies, like, you know, uh, it's been involved in that. So, so there's all these different ways to do it. It's just, you sort of, you, you want to do something. But, it, but you never want to totally lie to students. That, that's never good. Uh, other questions? Can yeah. you share some examples? Yes. Let me pull up some quickly, just to show you that these are low fidelity, but really clever. Let me just open up at random. Oh, okay. So I'll show you how wild these are. Here's, here's an example. So these are all remember developing countries. So here's a cool example. This is a project called Jimothy. What problem are they trying to solve? Well, turns out in, um, in uh, southern Africa, um, they're worried that the aborigines are treated very badly. They have a tremendous cultural difference. And these guys have this idea of an animatronic doll called Jimothy. And let me just sort of show, I'll show you the pictures, I'll talk, I'll talk through it. So the idea is these two kids go to school together, but the problem is that there's a huge cultural difference in the way they uh, communicate. It turns out that for the Aboriginal people in Western Australia, nonverbals are an enormous part of what you do. Verbal communication is very limited. And the traditional Australian culture is much more verbals. So when these kids try to interact, the, the aborigines are seen as uncommunicative. Even though they're incredibly, they're both seen as uncommunicative, right? It's the perfect classic, like any social, how can you not love that, right? Both are looking at each other and going, boy, you're so goddamn uncommunicative, and here I am communicating my little buns off, right? So how do you solve this problem? Well, there's a lot of ways to solve this problem. And the point is, this kid's all confused. And the worst part is, when he becomes a policeman and arrests, uh, it turns out aboriginals are arrested at a much higher rate. The aboriginals are seen as uncooperative, unwilling to talk, uncommunicative, disrespectful. And they're not trying to be. So here's a wild solution. And this is a wild one. I'll show you some more saner ones. But, but there's something cool about this. They, the idea is they videotape this girl and other aborigines and how they communicate. And they use that to model how the, the Jimothy doll should communicate. And they learn the different expressions and, and, and movements. And then the kids play with the doll to learn how the doll communicates. And through this, he deduces the gestural language and says, oh, I get it. She thinks I'm cute. And the happy ending, I love this one. They both become policemen and become uh, good friends and uh, to do it. Now, that's a very high tech. Let me, let me take a totally different um, example. Uh, okay, so let me find a real, there's so many cool ones, I, I, I feel bad I'm not going to pull up the most zesty, let me, let me just see, um, alright, this is a rather prosaic one, just so, in fact, Moo, we talked about Moo, the milk output organizer, so much more prosaic, um, turns out that the nomads of West Africa have the problem of 
they lose over 50% of the milk they produce. So they're in poverty. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of reasons for this and a huge advantage in, in monitoring this. Um, and what they do is, this is a system that they can carry around. It's not expensive. Now, is this probably at a price point that would work right now? No. But it's solar powered. They recognize that these, these guys can't, uh, are illiterate, so it uses speech. And what it basically does is model, milk, measure milk production. And it monitors each cow because over-milking over cows is bad, et cetera. They have, have thought a lot about the form factors of doing things for the dirty climate, the, the dust and desert that they're in. And it monitors them. It also has wireless to recover things, et cetera. So here's an example. Uh, note also, these are not high-tech graphics, 3D animation, right? Because that would, again, differentiate students on a basis that it's unfair to differentiate. And then they get themselves, and they sell off the extra milk, and everybody's happy, and the world's a great place. The, the other one I was going to show you, totally different idea, um, a system that required in corruption in India. So again, different parts of the world, different ideas. This was a project called iRate, and it involved a uh, badging system that had the, um, uh, each government official would have to wear a badge, and people could rate them anonymously, and the badge would change color based on how honest or dishonest they were. Now, you may say to yourself, geez, that seems like a wacky system. Two fascinating points. Here's one thing that was pointed out. One of the students pointed out, the problem with the system is, often you want to find the corrupt official because it actually benefits you. So that was wonderful to think about that. Second thing is, although that system didn't go, ideas from that system were built into kiosks in India involving ways of people reporting on government officials. It wasn't a wireless system, they don't wear a badge, but it was a kiosk system where you could pull up the government official's name and use the same type of system. So, so again, it's not that RFID microwave color changeable badges are the right thing, but the ideas are there, the important ideas. And on the milk production one, they actually had some very clever ideas about that. Is Jimothy the perfect way to do this you know, non-gestural problem? I doubt it. But there are some very interesting ideas about using, using um, these technologies and things like websites and such, which are much cheaper, to help kids practice interacting with cultures that are not like their own. And so it's very interesting in that way. OK, thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.